0: Kia ora, I'm Ann O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to the session podcast, Completely Beside Ourselves, from our 2018 programme. Best-selling author Karen Joy Fowler is a maverick, with novels and short stories spanning science fiction, fantasy and literary fiction, including the man Booker Prize finalist, We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves, the New York Times bestseller, The Jane Austen Book Club, and the Penn Faulkner fiction finalist, Sister Noon. She is the co-founder of the James Tiptree Jr. Award, given to works which increase understanding of gender, and is the president of the Clarion Foundation, which supports the teaching of sci-fi and fantasy writing. She speaks with Kate DeGoldie in a session supported by Platinum patrons Pip Muir and Kit Tugood. We hope you enjoy this.
1: Thank you very much. I'm going to do my best to ignore the fact that I am enormous behind me.
2: (laughs) Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. <laughs> I want. It seems wrong to start in a linear way with you, Karen, but I do want to start with your origins because I mean your your writing origins, because you did come up through science fiction and fantasy. Let's call it speculative fiction for now. And um, the so-called literary world would um, argue that you broke through um, with your two bestsellers. But um, I want to I want you to talk to us about. What reading in speculative fiction gave you as both a child and um, an adult, and then how that led into your early writing?
1: Uh, First of all, I I would say that, um, although I I don't quarrel in any way with um, the things that you've outlined, that the fact that I started in science fiction was a bit coincidental Mm -hmm. in my mind, that Mm -hmm. I... um, when I started writing, because I read everything, it seemed normal and ordinary that I would try my hand at writing everything, and, uh, and what happened is that the things that sold were sold to science fiction magazines, mm-hmm. although the field has had long and um, vituperative arguments ever since I came in about where I belong and Mm. whether I have in fact graced the field of science fiction or destroyed the field of science fiction. Um, You must be doing something right because you're upsetting everyone. Yeah. Yeah. A a solid case can be made on both sides. Um, But um, but I, uh, as I said, you know, um, I I make a lot of this fact, um, perhaps too much uh, of my mythical origin story, but I grew up in Bloomington, Indiana, and I spent a lot of time in the library there, and they did not sort books by genre, and the idea that things could be sorted by genre Mm. came to me very late and seemed to me very unnecessary, Mm. and I just have not paid a lot of attention to Mm. it, but... um, a lot of attention has been paid to it on my behalf. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we, made the, we made the point to each
2: other in the green room that um, that kind of dividing of genre occurs much less in children's literature. And I, as a children's aficionado, was um, tickled to see that your childhood reading included um, P.L. Travers, the creator of Mary Poppins, whose book's... much more substantial and and complex than the film, and Edward Eager, a great American fantasist for children, and Peter Dickinson, also a fantasist. So you you were reading a lot clearly of good children's literature in your childhood. Yes.
1: The the Mary Poppins books are um, one of the first books I actually remember encountering Mm. because that was read to me, Mm. Um, uh, and... um, just as all the characters in Winnie the Pooh have my father's voice, all the characters in Mary Poppins have my mother's voice. Not Julie Andrews. <laughs> no. <laughs> Don't get me started on the movie. Yeah. Um, and not only that one, but then the more recent one about making that movie, mm. also very distressing to mm, me. Mm. Um, Same.
2: What was interesting about um, P.L. Trevis and Mary Poppins was the philosophy that lay at the back of those stories?
1: Yeah, I was perhaps not as tuned into that.
2: Oh, I wasn't either like until uh, I grew up and read about it, yeah. But um, it was interesting to me that someone um, steeped in theosophy would choose to write um, around that and about that in a children's form. So, in a way, you were getting. Um, Um, a
1: model weren't you from those writers from all of those writers yes
2: Um, but you said that once you got to college the book that really knocked you sideways was The Left Hand of Darkness and I know you'll be talking about Ursula Le Guin this afternoon with other Ursula fans
1: but what was it particularly about that book well um, you know having having talked about how wide my reading as a child was um, uh, as a second-wave feminist in the early days of second-wave feminism, it is um, humiliating to admit that I read Ursula Le Guin because my boyfriend told me I should, um, (laughs) that um, we had 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 a a couple of dates, and, um, and, and then we had a conversation in which he said there were many things about me that he liked, and he listed some of the things that he liked. It was a lovely conversation, Until the point where he said there was only one thing about me he did not like. And I asked what that was, mistakenly, one should never ask. Um, uh, But he said that he could tell, even though we had never discussed it, that I was the kind of snotty girl who thought she didn't like science fiction, even though she had never read any of it. And um, that stung mostly because of its accuracy. Uh, (laughs) LAUGHTER but rather than, uh, than concede, uh, I told him that he could not be more mistaken, that I was a great science fiction fan, and then, you know, sort of shoved him quickly out the door before we could begin to discuss my favorite science fiction books. Um, and then, uh, honestly, I, I went to the bookstore. This was in Berkeley. I, it was Moe's Books, and said to the clerk, I need some science fiction. <laughs> And he gave me The Left Hand of Darkness, mm. Dune, and I feel in his only kind of lapse of taste, A.E. Van Voight's Voyage of the Space Beagle.
2: <laughs> uh, um, was that about da- sort of Darwinian notions? Was
1: uh, it? Yeah. Right. Mm. Yeah. Um, but I liked them all. Yeah. But The Left Hand of Darkness just was revelatory. Mm. It's, it made me think completely differently about, um, you know, about how, um, how gender might operate mm. differently in different places. And in a sort of straight line, many years later when I began to publish, um, along with my friend Pat Murphy, we created an award for exactly this kind mm. of literature mm. called the James Tiptree Award. Yeah. Um,
2: Now, despite the um, science fiction world being cross with you from time to time, um, someone at least, John Joseph Adams, um, had trust in you to ask you to um, edit the Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy 2016. And your forward to that is so interesting. Um, You, probably for the benefit of people who may be new to the form, or just a reminder to everyone else, list. the things that science fiction and fantasy can do, and how, in your view, the world is in a place at the moment, which means that realism isn't really up to the task of reporting and analyzing what's going on.:
1: Yes, well, you need look no further than the American political situation to see that realism has had its day, and yeah. um, <laughs> uh, other tools are now needed mm. um. And, I mean, the big revelation
2: for me in reading your short fiction, which I didn't know, was um, the kind of extraordinary reach of one's inventiveness if one asks oneself the question, what if? But also how intensely political um, the writing can be without being didactic. And it did take me some time to realise that in your most recent collection, what we didn't see, what I... I'm not good on titles today. That's all right.
1: <laughs> yeah, what, what I didn't see. There's a quite
2: incredible story, The Pelican Bar, which I read a couple of times and then realised was on some level about torture and I guess about America's... Um, yes, it's about Guantanamo dis- Bay. Dissonance, Guantanamo Bay and or Abu Ghraib, yeah. Um, my question here is... How does it work in a story like that? Do you find yourself writing about this, like discovering it as you, as you proceed, or do you set out to address a problem?
1: Different stories come to me in different ways, so mm. both of those are ways that I have written stories. Mm. In the case of the Pelican Bar, um, yes, I set out with a, with a very clear agenda. Um, I wish the story were in fact... Fantastical. Um, Mm. It it reads as a piece of fantasy, but it's not. It's Mm. the 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 schools described are real places where real children are Mm. sent and have the treatment that my character has. Mm. Um, And and, uh, the story came from a comment I read online that said, um, "Why should we be surprised that we are willing to torture people from other countries?" when we are so comfortable torturing our own children.
2: Mm. Yes, the the misplaced good intention allegedly is at the heart of the story. The sort of hapless parents whose child is just acting out, as any good teenager does, is shipped off to be broken, really. And I mean, it's a perfect analogue for the American military state, isn't it? You know, when you get to a certain point in your writing life, you you can look back and realise the way you work without actually Heather... Having sat down to figure it out, what are some of the things you would say about your procedure with um, writing? I know, for instance, with your novels, you you say you often start with place, which was interesting to me.
1: Well, um, just to circle that question briefly back to science fiction, this is my attachment to that hmm. genre: is is that this is the um, this is the story that can take place. Absolutely anywhere. Mm. And um, some of my favorite science fiction stories, uh, there's one um, called Venice Drowned, which takes place in... Uh, in uh, Apparently Venice is sinking mm. into the sea. The story takes place when Venice is thoroughly sunk and, mm. and you are scuba diving through the churches. Um, it's just a, a, a wonderfully beautiful, strange mm. place. Another one... Um, There's a story called The Shape We're In, which you realize at the end uh, has taken place entirely in the Trojan horse. Mm. Um, Mm. uh, And so um, I I feel, um, as I say in that foreword, that you are never so deeply in someone's imagination. as um, and, And... I realized that was not the question you asked, and now I do not remember the question no, no, you actually but, asked.
2: <laughs> but I want to take you up on that. Because oh,
1: my process, yes, my process. process. Yeah. Um, well, it's, um, it's, it's a troubling process. It's not the process I would have chosen for myself. Um, but I do I do feel when I teach that, uh, that I tell people to be very cautious about jettisoning their own... Um, inadequate and inefficient methods for something that would be smarter, because I, I think that uh, that when you start to write, you do it because there's a joy that you find in doing right. it. And if, if you become too efficient, I fear what you will lose is that joy. So um, I, I muddle about um, at the beginnings, uh, very unsure often of where I'm going, or what what I have, um, I, you know, I can start with something that's very, very vague, and 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 when I begin to write, uh, it's it's sort of to answer the question mm. of why I think there's a story in whatever this vague thing in my head is. I really like rewriting, mm. so my process is a very rewrite heavy process mm. because that's what I enjoy, and uh, you know that's how. Um, I coax myself to the computer is by promising that before I have to write anything new, I will be allowed to rewrite um, oh, what Oh, so I it's wrote. not a
2: displacement activity to rewrite. It's actually
1: it's important to the process, yeah. Well, it's certainly important to my process.
2: One of the things I love about the stories is, um, as well as the what-if behind things and um, the idea of bringing together outsiders, and real people at different times. You often write in the sort of, an idea comes in the interstices of of history or side players, and there's two fantastic stories about the Booth brothers um, in the most recent collection, and um, one's about the actor, um, Edwin Booth, Booth's ghost, and the other is sort of about John Wilkes Booth, but it's about a young woman to the side of the plot to assassinate Lincoln. I'm intrigued by that story and by, and by your intention with, that, with those two stories.
1: Can you talk a bit about that? Well, um, I'm actually, uh, I got so fascinated by the Booths that um, I'm actually in the middle of a novel oh, um, dealing, right. dealing with um, John Wilkes Booth's brothers and sisters. Mm. He had a fairly large family. And in in the second of those stories that you referenced about um, Anna Surratt, uh, I think I'm very interested in the sort of collateral damage Mm. of... um, I'm not so interested in the perpetrator of the act Mm. as I am in the people who, um, uh, you know, are are caught up in it, uh, often very innocently.
2: I didn't realise how how targeted the, the whole Booth family was. After the assassination. After the assassination. They were in peril for their lives. Yes, they yeah. were.
1: Um, the, his oldest brother um, was very lucky to escape mm. being lynched. He was, he was hidden um, a, at the hotel where he was staying when a lynch mob came for him.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, and he spent several months in prison as well um, because he was suspected of having collaborated in some vague way. There was a letter... Um, from John Wilkes Booth to him, or back, I can't quite remember, but there was a reference to the oil business, which uh, John Wilkes Booth had bought an oil well, uh, and yet the federal government saw this as a code for something else. They found it very suspicious.
2: Mm. I mean, one of the great joys of reading contemporary um, speculative fiction like those stories is the the historical, which... Used to seem very far away, now feels really sort of contemporary. There's nothing new under the sun in the kind of glorious madness of America. Is there?
1: Yes. <laughs> well, it's it's hard to look at what's going on and think to yourself, "There's nothing new under the sun," um, yeah. as it all is. Um, you know, it's all been there, yeah. but not so vividly as it is now.
2: And in black glass. Someone who was already there is brought forth um, into the 20th century. I didn't know about this person, Carrie Nation. Carrie Nation. And um, she becomes um, a marauder with her axe in the 20th century.
1: And she was an activist for temperance. That's she what? went in and busted up bars. Yeah.
2: Magnificent character. Um but as this is so common with your work, you then marry it to the most unlikely scenario, which is DEA, Drug Enforcement Agency agents, trying to chase her down by using voodoo. It's completely insane. <laughs> it's completely enthralling.
1: It all makes perfect
2: sense done. if you read it. Um, and um, you just so want to go along for the ride. And, but you just I thought it might be nice if you just read a little bit to contextualize right, I'm it. I'm happy people.
1: to. All right, so this is kind of... Early on in the story, but not at the very beginning of the story. Um, Patrick Harris had been a DEA agent for eight years now. During those eight years, he had seen some action. He'd been in Mexico, and he'd been in Panama, and he'd been in L.A. He had been in one or two tight spots, but that didn't mean he couldn't help out with the dishes at home. Harris knew he asked a lot of his wife. Couldn't be the easiest thing in the world, being married to a man who disappeared into Latin America for days at a time, and might not even be able to get a message out that he was still alive. Harris could run a vacuum cleaner over a rug without feeling that he was doing his wife any favors. Harris could cook a meal from the very beginning, meaning the planning and the shopping and everything, without feeling that anyone needed to make a fuss about it. He stood with the French bread and the Gruyere cheese and the imported Emmentaler Swiss in the nine-items-only, no-checks checkout line, wondering how he could use the tomatoes, which he hadn't planned to buy, but were cheaper and redder than usual and had tempted him. The woman in front had 12 items. Didn't really irritate Harris. He was only sorry that it was so hard for some people to play by the rules. (laughs) While he waited for the three extra items to be tallied and worried in an ineffective, pleasant way over the tomatoes, he read through the headlines. Evidence of prehistoric alien cannibals had been found in Peruvian cave paintings and a statue of Elvis had been found on Mars. (laughs) A husband with bad breath had killed his wife merely by kissing her. (laughs) A Miami bar had been destroyed by some sort of half woman, half gorilla. Harris saw the illustration before he read the story, an artist's rendering of Queen Kong in a black dress and bonnet. He looked at the picture again. He read the headline. One of his tomatoes spun from the counter to the floor, Harris stepped on it, squished it, and didn't even notice. He bought the paper. He had never been in so much trouble in his life. Oh, lovely. Thank you. Thank you. Uh,
2: one, of, one of the great things about reading you is your joy in the kind of crazy quotidian, so all that glorious detail.
1: My, um, my favorite part of researching that particular story was learning that... Um, the federal government had put aside a substantial sum of money so that DE agents could position themselves on the Mexican border dressed as cactuses. (laughs) 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 Once again, realism not up to the task.
2: A striking thing about your IRF, Karen, is um, the enormous range of subject matter. And so when confronted with um, women in a 1947 baseball team off to find husbands, or a Jane Austen book club, or the Northwest in the 1870s, or San Francisco in the Gilded Age. You think, what's the project this woman is engaged in? But one of the things that carries across all the books is playing with the form and commenting actually on fiction as an agent and a pleasure. And I've already forgotten what, what that question was going to end in, but I think it was, yes, I know, it was a way of segueing <laughs> to um, the Sweetheart Season and what's End, which I think of in tandem. But um, the Sweetheart Season, which is a story of women baseballers and a town in 1947, was very unexpected for me after I'd read everything else. Can you tell us a little bit about um, the origins of that story?
1: I stumbled on... a. Uh, a master's thesis, an unpublished master's thesis that was referenced in uh, some other book that I, you know, some other topic I was researching. Um, I, I get many of my ideas from the footnotes of other uh, mm. uh, other topics. Um, and I, I will just um, mention as a brief aside that one of the things that I mean, one of the great things about research on the internet is that it's so available. I don't have to worry about where I'm going to park. (laughs) But, um, but library research, I almost always find that the book I really want is next to the book I go in to get, and and there is no Mm. way on the internet that Mm. that happens in that same way. The happenstance of browsing. It's yeah. something else, yeah. So I was just, uh, I was unaware of um, uh, of how popular women's baseball during World War II was. I mean, mm-hmm. we hear uh, a lot in my country about Rosie the Riveter and all mm-hmm. the women taking the men's jobs, but, um, but baseball was one of the jobs the mm-hmm. women took during the war. Uh, and unfortunately, as I was writing the book... Um, the movie A League of Mm, Her Own mm -hmm. came out. And I thought, well, damn. (laughs) I thought, maybe it will be a very small movie and nobody will notice it. And then I heard that Madonna had been cast. And I thought, well, I I suspect that woman knows exactly what she's doing to me. Mm. (laughs) I've
2: remembered where I was going with my um, question before. That story is ostensibly about the baseball team and the lack of men in the very boring town in which they live. It's a town built on breakfast cereal. There's definitely a metaphor in there. Um, But most amusingly, one of the main characters in the town is a fictional one um, who is a kind of Betty Crocker icon who's been invented by the breakfast cereal king. And things start to unravel when um, the reader in the town realise that someone is interfering with her column, with the recipes, Cayenne Pepper being suggested for, I can't remember, a, a sweet dish, rather inappropriately. So what often is happening in your books is that you're poking at mythologies and accepted wisdoms, and that book is as much about our weird view of the placid 1950s or late, you know, late 40s and 50s, isn't it? I mean, you're talking about American and there are a mythology. couple of
1: things. I think of it as a book about the Vietnam War, although the Vietnam War is never mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the, the the relief that is thrown on the Vietnam War by looking at World War II mm-hmm. and and what the uh, domestic um, experience of World War II mm. was like. So, um, so, so I sort of imagine that readers would come to the book. Um, understanding that mm. the experience at home of the Vietnam War mm. was quite a different one. Also, um, that was my second novel, mm. and, um, and I was very insecure about writing novels. Um, I still am, but there seems no point in letting that stop me anymore. Um, and so for my first two books, I had a template in my mind of a different novel mm-hmm. um, that I loved. For Sarah Canary, my first novel, my template was The Wizard of Oz. And um, my hope, um, although I'm not distressed if this hope does not come true, my hope is that you read the book and you do not know that. Yeah, I mean, that never crosses your mind. But if I say that to you, I think you can begin to absolutely. pick out yeah. absolutely the how I have used. Mm-hmm. Um. And for the second novel... Um, my template was the Dorothy Sayers novel *Gaudy Night*, right? Which is uh, a, um, a, a mystery that is propelled by poison pen letters. Right. So that's where the yeah. messing about with her column and, and her, and she she gets fan mail, which she answers, mm. and those answers become increasingly demented as well. <laughs> it's, um,
2: it's wonderfully entertaining. At the beginning of the um, Sweetheart season, the narrator who's writing about her mother's life says this story is told by two unreliable narrators. So even though it's seemingly a realist story, you're absolutely playing with the reader. And the reader's relationship to your stories is always
1: front and centre of your work. I wrote the book when my mother was dying. And my editor, who knew I was writing the book and that my mother was dying but knew nothing about the book, Um, And and my editor loves uh, a a bleak, grim vision of the world. And I think um, she imagined that that's what I would produce for her. Um, And um, uh, when my actual life is difficult, I cannot live in an imaginary world that is also difficult. So Mm. I think The Sweetheart Season is my funniest book. Mm. And it's sure. sort of the frothiest book. Mm. Mm. And um, I have to sometimes say, you know, a story like The Pelican Bar will come out, and friends will call up and say, you know, are you, are you all right? Mm. I read that story. You seem, you seem upset. Mm. And, I, you know, I am always upset. That is, I, mm. that is, my, um, that is my default mode, mm. uh, for which I do not blame myself at all. The world is an upsetting place. Um, <laughs> And I am merely paying attention. Mm. But, um, but I also feel that my friends have not figured this out, that when I write something that's bleak and distressed, my life is going fine. Mm. And, mm. and it's only when I write something re- really funny that then I should be getting that phone call. Mm. Mm.
2: Um, Sarah Canary, I'm really happy to see, is back in print and available. And that was your first novel set in Northwest... Um, Atlantic, was it? Or the Pacific Northwest, sorry. Yes. And as you've pointed out hilariously, while I was reading that book, I was also reading a book about someone's obsession with Judy Garland, so I should have noticed that it's based on the Wizard of Oz <laughs> template. But um, it is Was the, that
1: um, possibly Jeff Ryman's was that you were reading? No, no,
2: it's actually Susie Boyd who is at the person oh, yes. and doing um, of of her course. Judy Garland show tonight. Um, but... Um, What's, I mean, the thing that I take from that but there's many, many things going on in that book that are wonderful. It's a bunch of companions of people who are other in one way or another, women, Chinese, um, African-American. Lunatic. Yeah, and lunatics. Uh, it is a lunatic book in a wonderful way. But the thing that um, I was most entertained by was Adelaide, who is um, travelling the logging camps, because the railroad's being built, um, to join the country up. And, of course, Chinese work is there. And she's lecturing on the female orgasm in 1870s America. Who knew? (laughs) But because you are constantly bringing actual characters into your stories, I just didn't know whether it was real or imagined.
1: Well, um, I think as a general rule, when you read my book and you get to the banal, boring parts, I made those up. Right. And when you get to the parts that you think, well, this can't possibly be true, I did not Mm. make those up. So, yes... Victoria Woodhull was touring the labor camps at that time, trying to persuade people that their wives were entitled to orgasmic pleasure. And they were responding by surreptitiously uh, doping her drinks with Ipecac in the hopes that she would vomit on Mm. stage while she was telling them these things. Holy God. (laughs) (laughs) And then she ran for the presidency. She was the first woman to run for the presidency. She... um, uh, the, uh, the vice presidential candidate on the ticket was Frederick Douglass, right. the, um, yeah. um, who had not been consulted, right. and just yeah. um, suddenly saw that he was running as vice for the vice presidency.
2: And this is all happening in the very turbulent post-Civil War period, so kind of it's all on for young and old, isn't it? Sarah Canary, after whom the story is named, is the silent character in the book. Everything else is sort of happening around her, but she's a a key person. And the business of who has language and who doesn't is in at least three of your books. Yes, clearly
1: an obsession.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And um, it's sort of at the base of wit's end, which is also another enormously enjoyable metafiction in lots of ways. Well,
1: thank you, because that book is not often admired. Is it not?
2: Um, what? what no. Because it's just people can't place where it fits.
1: Uh, I think, you know, we have to we have to be honest that there is also always the possibility that I've written a bad book right. and am um, <laughs> merely being informed of that. But I also think it came on the heels of um, the Jane Austen Book Club mm. and the success of the Jane mm. Austen Book Club and people who, um, that, that you know, I think it appears to me quite possible to enjoy my work if you start at Sarah Canary and mm. then read the Jane Austen Book Club. Mm. It appears impossible to enjoy my work if you start with the Jane Austen mm. Book Club and then read Sarah Canary. Mm. Then mm. you just think, well, this is not what I signed on for.
2: Yeah. Um, and it's tricky as a working writer to um, disappoint your fans, isn't it? I mean, to you risk disappointing them if you, if you change tack or do something completely different. But I'm picking you just... Don't think about that, if you can possibly. I just
1: don't really care.
2: No. <laughs> in Wit's End, um, we have a young woman in crisis. She's in grief because her um, father and brother are now gone. And she goes to stay with her um, godmother,
1: Edison. This, I think, I will say, you know, at the heart of it maybe a lot of the problem with the book is that I decided to write a rollicking comedy about... A woman who is deeply in grief, having lost every member of her family, that perhaps, um, perhaps people did not find that as funny as. uh, For me, I accepted the fact that she was
2: in a makeshift moment in her life, and she goes into this house where Edison, the mystery writer, lives. I think you want to
1: say that um, that uh, so the central one of the central characters in the book is a. A stratospherically successful mystery writer, mm. and the first writer I ever met in my life was Agatha Christie. So, oh, wow, isn't that you amazing? yes. and you chatted? I, c- I can't say that we chatted. Um, <laughs> well,
2: she, you, you uh, didn't have language at that point.
1: <laughs> well, um, I would not have known what to say. Mm. She, um, her husband was giving an archaeological. Mm. presentation at Stanford. I was a high school student, but I lived in Palo Alto, so I, I went um, and, you know, suffered through slide after slide of uh, artifacts and because I wanted to see Agatha Christie, and, um, and she did not disappoint. She was sitting in the front row. She was wearing an enormous mink coat and big, equally enormous fuzzy pink bedroom slippers (laughs) and I don't think on a conscious level it it hit me so hard as it did later that Mm. there was a job in the world that you could wear bedroom (laughs) slippers to and that may have been the moment I thought I will be a writer.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Oh that's marvellous. What I wanted to say or ask about that book is as you say you started off wanting a rollicking comedy about someone in grief. But there's so much else going on in the book as well. You feel some of the time you just couldn't leave out certain things, one of them being the cult that um, emerges and which our main protagonist starts
1: getting um, interested in. Cults are another obsession of <laughs> mine. Um, right. You know, and I've um, come through honestly since I live in California. Yeah. But I was, um, I think, the thing that um, sort of started me on this particular cult. Um, which which was uh, something that was in the Santa Cruz Mountains, so very mm. close to where I live, was reading about a, a sort of a sister cult uh, of um, immortals, mm. and I and I wrote another book about uh, another short story about them. Yeah. But this was a number of people who had, you know, um, given their fortunes over to a cult leader who promised that immortality would result, um, mm. but. Uh, <clears throat> as luck would have it, died of a heart attack before he could cash their checks. So. <laughs> but in one of the stories,
2: people remain. They're not disappointed that his very death undermined his theology.
1: So there's a sort of helpless optimism. With the... there's, it's a strange thing about cults. and um, You know, there are, I think, multiple examples of doomsday cults mm-hmm. where Um, the world is going to end on such and such a date, that date passes, the world does not end, the cult does not disappear. They announce that, you know, a slight miscalculation Mm, mm. has been made. Um, And we all accommodate it, more or less. Do we? (laughs) (laughs)
2: Um, um, The Wit's End and um, Sister Noon, you've said it somewhere that both those books began with place, and um, I had read Sister Noon um, twice actually, and not realised that Mary Ellen Pleasance was a real person until I looked her up last night. Pleasant, yeah. Can you talk a bit about that book? Because it's
1: intriguing. Yes, it was a um, that was an amazing research experience, and I do uh, I do enormous amounts of research for all my books. Um, for which I do not ask to be admired because mm. it is my favorite part. Mm. If I could just do the research and never write the book, life would be a happy, happy place. Um, so what happened is that, I, yes, I thought, well, I'm going to set a book in San Francisco. Um, the books I had written prior to that had all been in places I could not go and see. I did not have the money to actual, actually do the yeah. landscapes. But I lived quite close to San Francisco. I thought, why don't I... Why don't I set a book someplace I can actually go? Although, um, to my regret, I could not go to San Francisco in the 1890s. No. I had to make do with...
2: What a crazy I place know. <laughs> it I know. was.
1: Um, so I just began, I, I, I decided, San Francisco, the Gilded Age, right. And I just began to read what I could find mm. about it. And what I began to notice was that I read, I read stories about um, contested wills and about um, custody cases, uh, divorce cases, about the failure of the Bank of California and the suicide of the man who ran it, about the building of the Palace Hotel and the dignitaries who died there, um, uh, uh, about uh, a diamond scam, Uh, where, um, you know, a a field in Nevada was salted with diamonds and then a Mm -hmm. number of people were persuaded to invest in it uh, about about a a financial crash that had just happened. And what I began to notice was no matter what I read, no matter how far afield I thought I was going, Mary Ellen Pleasant's name always appeared Mm -hmm. in some way. Mm. And I started to think this woman, um, whom I had never heard of. Mm. She was an enormously wealthy black woman mm. who um, mysteriously, uh, for all her fortune, worked as a housekeeper in a very strange family. Um, I-, I began to think, you know, she was the secret mastermind mm. behind everything that happened in San Francisco. But then the strange thing, even stranger thing was the the San Francisco history room at the library has several boxes of um, uh, primary sources mm. on Mary Ellen Pleasant. So, um, I, I, I when I went to those boxes, I my feeling was I don't understand this woman at all. Um, but look at all of the things that will help me understand her. I mm. will go through these boxes um, and. I understood less and less and less mm. the more I read, and there there is a Ph.D. thesis on her which begins with the sentence, "There is not one fact about Mary Ellen Pleasant that is not contested, mm. from her age to her race to, um, you know, uh, uh, to her role mm. in the city." So um, instead of solidifying for mm. me, she just went mm. like sand through my hands. Mm. And in the end, um, it changed my conception of my own book. I thought, I cannot write a book about Mary Ellen Pleasant because I don't know anything about her, um, except that she was a tremendous liar, surrounded by tremendous liars. Mm. Um, So once again, story, in fact,
2: is contested all the way through that. And we kind of sidle up to her several times, and she's
1: never quite there for us to catch hold of. Well, what I, what I realized is what I could write about was the things people said about her because mm-hmm. there were many, many, many stories. And, and they could all be true or they could none of them be true. I don't know. But I do know that they were said. Mm-hmm. So um, I had to present it that way. These are the things people said about mm-hmm.
2: her. You know, I was reminded for all the world of um, Eleanor Catton's um, prize-winning The uh, Luminaries? Yeah, Luminaries. Why I can't remember titles today, I don't know. But it's set in a gold town around about the same time. Yeah. So it's the same kind of nuttiness going on. Yes. Um, Most enjoyable. Um, We haven't talked about your two most famous books, but we will. But I thought maybe because um, I'm sure there will be questions from the audience, I would invite people to come up to the mics if you want to ask Karen a question. Um, You will, of course, have time to talk to her later, but please feel free to come up to the mics. In the meantime, let's go to Jane Austen. Um, you were a Jane Austen fan yourself, I assume. I started reading Jane Austen
1: when I was in high school, yes. Yeah.
2: Have you ever seen that Friends episode where Rachel goes to night class and has to read Jane Austen but forgets to, and then Phoebe tricks her by saying there are robots in it? I have not. <laughs> and she makes a fool of herself <laughs> in um, front of the class. And I did think of that because For me, that was an unexpected book. I didn't read that till after the others. Um, But it catapulted you into, but probably beyond. I think the only
1: thing that could have made me love Jane Austen more than I already do is if there had been robots (laughs) in the (laughs) books. I was talking to a friend before um,
2: I came backstage, and he said that what he liked so much about the Jane Austen Club book was its subtlety. It's not immediately easy to align the various characters with the characters in Jane Austen we should explain just in case there's someone here who hasn't read it a book club is discussing the six Jane Austen novels and their own stories correspond in very nuanced ways to Jane Austen characters
1: how did it how did it grow that book it was just so much fun um Mm. Again, again it, was a t-
2: it was a template for you. Again, it, yes. Wasn't
1: it? Again, it was another. Bo- it, yeah. Although I had all six novels and, and a little bit of Lady Susan as well mm. um, to to play off of. Um, uh, the The idea um, came. Uh, there, are, there are only two books that I could tell you the minute the idea, you know, like a lightning strike, uh, arrived, and those are. Coincidentally or not, my two most successful books, The Jane Austen Book Club and We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves. In the case of The Jane Austen Book Club, I had already started writing We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves. Um, And I went to a bookstore uh, to hear a friend of mine who was doing a reading, and there was a sign on the wall that said The Jane Austen Book Club. And I was in a bookstore, so I thought that was the title of a book. And I just felt my heart rise. I thought, I... I can't wait to read that book, what a, fabulous, what a fabulous idea. And then immediately, because I'm a writer, thought, why don't I ever have good ideas like that? <laughs> why does everybody else, I could have written that book. I love Austin. Um, and then I looked more closely and there were dates and times and I realized that it was a book club and, um, and not a book. And, um, and I thought, writers go in and out of this store all the time, and mm. they all walk past that sign, mm. and if I don't get this book written really fast, <laughs> um, so I set aside, we are all completely beside ourselves. You uh, set it aside. I set it aside, <laughs> and I wrote the Jane Austen Book Club instead. You have to understand, too, that my, um, my career was on a troubling downslope, <laughs> that, um, that Sarah Canary sold pretty well, given that I was completely unknown. Mm. Um, and then um, uh, the Sweetheart season sold less well, and then uh, Sister Noon. Uh, you know, if everybody in the audience bought Sister Noon today, you would uh, quadruple the sales I have had on the book. You really should buy. it. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> so this is not what your publisher wishes no. to see. Um, and, and I I knew that the Jane Austen Book Club was a commercial idea. Mm-hmm. I did not expect I would write a commercial book. I did. I thought to myself, in somebody else's hands, this would be a bestseller. Mm. I wonder how I will fuck it up. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, it's good to leave a bit of mystery in your writing. Yes. <laughs> but um, but I also thought, you know, there are 2,000 women in the Jane Austen Society of North America. Mm. If half of them buy the book, mm. I will be. Ticking back up.
2: Um. I mean, On the face of it, and of course writers read all sorts of things, on the face of it, Jane Austen seems an unlikely kind of novelist for you. But in fact, amidst all the sort of um, marvellous imaginings of your story, there are those um, marvellous Austonian moments um, between people, sly um, comments um, secret knowledge about people I mean you're, you're very you're very au fait with social interaction and texture so that's my ex- explanation
1: for why you like her I have a, cu- a couple of explanations one of which is that um, I just love her secondary characters and she has gotten me through Many, many unpleasant social interactions uh, mm. where I just say to myself, I am in a Jane Austen novel, and this person who is irritating or boring or... That's uh,
2: Mr. Collins or Miss Bates. Yes,
1: yes, <laughs> um, uh, is actually an Austen character, mm. and I find them extremely mm. amusing. Mm. Um, and I say that over and over and over mm. to myself. Um, But also, um, because I started to read her so young, because I have read her so often, uh, it's a very layered reading experience Mm -hmm. now Mm for me. I'm reading the book as who I am now, but Mm -hmm. the ghosts of all those earlier readings and my opinions of what she's doing and how she's doing it have changed dramatically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm, I'm, I'm encountering my earlier selves as well as seeing what the text looks like to me now. Mm. from, from mm.
2: I have a friend who, um, similarly to you, just goes deeper and deeper into Jane Austen and feels that it's almost, those books are almost sufficient <laughs>
1: for, for a reading experience a whole lot. I think there are life. a number of people who, who yeah. feel that way. One of the great joys of writing the book was that when I turned it in, um, my editor, it, it did come in a little short, and my editor said, you know, um, why don't you look at some of the critical work around her and see if you can include some of that. Mm. And, uh, and I had never looked at the mm. critical work around her. I, I was not an English, uh, not a literature major. Um, you know, I read her on my own. Mm. Um, and that was so much fun. Mm. I love nothing more than um, professors at each other's throats. Mm over something that it seems to me matters to no one else in the world. Um, Mm -hmm. And there's a wonderful quote from Mark Twain. Oh, yes. Um, It's every time I read Pride and Prejudice, I want to dig her up and hit her over the head with her own shin bone. Um, (laughs) But I look at that quote and I think, Mark, Mark. Put the book down. Stop reading it. You don't don't like it. Read something else. (laughs) But he had to keep
2: reading. Yeah, Um, You actually do have kind of robot fun in that book by having a science fiction aficionado. Um, And that seems to me um, a gesture to the people who are so keen
1: on making genre
2: boundaries.
1: It's also um, because so many of my friends are in the our science fiction writers and Mm. readers, and I spend a lot of time in their company, a delightful time in their company, not the Jane Austen characters I Mm. have to um, grit my teeth through. Um, I started telling people that I was writing a book about Jane Austen, and I was pleasantly surprised at how excited they were Mm. and how many of them love Austen. And as I talked more to them, I began to understand that they read her as if they're reading a science fiction text, that you're in a strange world, you don't really know um, the mm-hmm. rules. Mm. Um, often you don't, you know, you don't recognize some of the words, and mm-hmm. so you are you are making your way through an alien landscape, and that's their reading experience of her. Um, mm-hmm. Because I started reading her in high school, it seemed all too familiar to me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I did not read her as a strange alien landscape. I read her as, you know, somebody who um, uh, foresaw the American high school scene um, mm. <laughs> uh, in a really startling way. Mm. It, you know, it all, the, all, all, uh, Many of the rules that were still in place uh, that, you know, if, if you liked a boy, um, you could not mm. express that in any way. You must be Extremely careful that he never learned that, yeah. um, mm. because it was it was up to him to make a move or not make a move. Um,
2: Just as a matter of interest, were you good at those codes when you were young?
1: I was. Um, I was moved from Bloomington, Indiana, to Palo Alto, California, when I was eleven years old, and um, these these. The significance of that will, I think, resonate less here. But, um, but an 11-year-old girl in Bloomington, Indiana was a very young girl. Mm. And an 11-year-old girl in Palo Alto, California was a teenager, mm. pre-teenager. And so there was this big leap that I could not make. Mm. Um, and as a result, I went from being um, quite outspoken and, um, and confident to being somebody who just did not speak at all, because if I opened my mouth, it was so uh, evident that I was going to say something that would draw attention Mm. that I did not want. So um, the idea that you did not let a boy know that you liked him fit very easily into my um, decision Mm. not to let anybody see me in any way.
2: Mm. Hence the preoccupation with who can and can't speak. Yeah, story, yeah. Um, One of the things that you do brilliantly in all your books is withhold in in, in your stories. Um, So, for instance, with uh, Mary Ellen Pleasant, you're not aware that she's African-American until quite a long way into the story. And I guess one of your great pieces of withholding is in we are all completely beside ourselves. I mean, I'm going to take it for... um, we're going to have to talk about the reveal, otherwise we can't really talk. I actually wrote a review of that book, and I, it was the hardest review I've ever done.
1: I do apologise <laughs>
2: because I couldn't say, except you know, more or less, just had to say, read this book, read this book. Um, but for the very you know one or two people who don't know what that book's about, um, it seismically changes um, or your inhabiting of the world and the ideas of the story change after about 70 pages. Um, I'm really interested to know if you always knew that was going to happen. Did you write your way to that notion or did you know you were going to withhold for as long as you could? I,
1: I The first decision I made was that, that crucial information would need to be withheld. So mm. I always knew mm. that, that that was the way the book was going to proceed, that, mm. that if... I was to have any control over how the reader saw the situation. And, and it is a first-person narrator with a, an agenda. Mm. So um, it's really not me doing the withholding so mm-hmm. much as her doing the withholding, um, True. of which I cannot, in fact, approve, but <laughs> um, had no way to stop. Um, it's actually great to go back and read
2: that book after you know everything and read that first third or quarter, kind of looking for the tells, which aren't quite there, but they feel there the second time around. So just can you give us a bit of background? Um, Many many people may know this, but your parents were um, scientists
1: themselves? My mother was a nursery school teacher. My father was a behaviourist, a a psychologist, a mathematician, but in the uh, Skinnerian Right world of Indiana University. Right. So my father worked in the Skinnerian world of Indiana University. My mother was the nursery school teacher for Skinner's children, mm. who I'm told were hellions. And they're both,
2: they're both working with the vulnerable in different ways. I mean, this that, that book requires us to think hard about. What it is to be human, but also what we're visiting on the on the creatures who aren't human. Um, I mean, there were so many ways of approaching it. Was that intentional, or did it
1: again? Did that come as you wrote? Very intentional, um, but also uh, evolved in mm-hmm. certain ways as I wrote the book. So, um, so I started. Um, Thinking in particular about um, uh, lab animals, Mm. you know, uh, subset of um, of the animal kingdom, Uh, and I was I was very focused on them. Uh, And then as I as I worked my way through the book, I began to realize that I I needed to know a great deal more than I did about the current work on animal cognition. Mm. Uh, and animal capabilities, and I am fortunate that I live in a university town, and fortunate that university professors are generally so pleased to <laughs> share with you. And so I, I sat in on mm. a class on animal theory, and um, I just learned amazing mm. things. It was it was life changing for me. To mm. uh, uh, but the sort of great Overarching takeaway was just that we have underestimated the creatures we share the planet with mm. in every possible way.
2: Somewhere you've written, um, and this comes back again to who has language and who doesn't, that y- you were taken aback by the fact that we're always wondering how chimps can, how we can communicate with chimps, or how how well um, they communicate. They can with, communicate with us. With with us why do we never think about how they were communicating with each other? I mean, the assumption there is really telling, isn't it?
1: Yes. Um, Mm. I think, you know, uh, one of the things um, that Ursula Le Guin first said or that I first encountered in Ursula Le Guin in one of her many uh, very persuasive and passionate defences of uh, science fiction and fantasy is that um, realism absolutely centers the human Mm. and that in these other genres um, other voices are possible and and important and the human is not Mm. necessarily the central Mm. um, concern of Mm. the story Mm. so so yes that's another reason that that i am attracted to those genres i also um, feel that no other book i have written has come so deeply out of my own, uh, autobiography. Mm, mm-hmm. And that, um, I think, um, my, my father, uh, worked with rats. He, mm. he studied learning in rats. And that certainly by age six and possibly before, he and I began, launched, uh, uh, an argument that lasted the rest of his life. And so far the rest of my life, mm. um, over the question of whether animals could think or not. Um, That story,
2: I'm sure, um, profoundly changed many people and made them, required them to think differently. And And, you know, the power of story to do that seemed really evident. Interesting that you mentioned rats. The final story in your most recent collection, King Rat ends, it's, that's an autobiographical story, isn't it?
1: It is, yes. And I, will, I will, you know, just to uh, emphasize again my confusion over genre and genre distinctions, I had begun to hear the words creative nonfiction, and mm. I was trying to understand what that was because it, you know, seemed evident that all mm. nonfiction was creative. So mm. this new category was um, puzzling to me. And what I was told was that this is nonfiction that uses some of the strategies of fiction. Yes. So I thought, oh, I wonder if I can do that. And I, um, and I wrote King Rat, which is, to the best of my recollection, an absolutely true story. Mm. And then learned that it had been picked up for the year's best fantasy that year. <laughs>
2: so.
1: Just to finish
2: on that, it's a very affecting story. It's about a man whose son goes missing in America. A Swedish?
1: He's Norwegian. Norwegian
2: man. At the end, you say, and you're addressing that man, I hate this story. He's talking about going searching for his son. Vidkin, you say to him, for your long ago gifts, I return now two things. The first is I will not change this ending, the boy missing. This is your story. No magic, no clever rescue, no final twist. And in some way it seems to me you're making a statement about writing's trickery and the responsibility of the writer to other people's fidelities and emotional experiences. And I don't even know if I want you to comment on that.
1: <laughs> but, um, I will I say that the second thing I promise him in that story is that I will never write that story again. again. And mm. then I write it every time I... Uh, I, I write a novel. Certainly that's mm. the story of we are all completely beside ourselves. Mm. So I did um, say to some friends at one point, you know, I'm aware that I made a promise that I have broken and mm. they said well we never believed it anyway. Mm. So, um, and, I,
2: and I guess you're saying that's the helpless impulse of the writer again and again. Well, All I can say is long may it last. Thank and you. Thank you for everything Karen. It's marvelous. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast from the 2018 Auckland Writers' Festival. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes and SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.